0: This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify brands the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable, durable, and sustainable furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water-stain, fade, and mold-resistant this episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello everyone, it's Lee Green and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode eighty eight of the Stairway to CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Hillary Peterson, the founder of True Botanicals. True Botanicals is a luxurious, consciously crafted skincare brand on a mission to deliver clean, non-toxic, and sustainable products that are clinically proven to work with ethically sourced vegan ingredients. In this episode, Hillary shares with us her story from growing up with three sisters and entrepreneurial parents in Pasadena, California, to attending Middlebury College, to working in marketing at Levi's, to taking the leap into entrepreneurship following the death of her beloved mother. We talk about her transition from CEO, what makes a great leader, what she's learned about hiring the right people, and why it's important not to sweat the small stuff. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hillary, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in building true botanicals. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks
1: so much for having me, Lee.
0: So where are you from originally? Where'd you grow up?
1: I grew up in Pasadena in Southern California.
0: Not too far away from where I am right now. I'm actually in Woodland Hills.
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. So Southern Southern California California. girl. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What was it like growing up in Pasadena?
1: Oh, my gosh. It was such an idyllic area to grow up for somebody who loves to spend time outside because the weather's great most of the year. So I was on my bike all the time and I had a lot of independence. And yeah, I felt very, very lucky to grow up there.
0: And did you have any siblings? What did your parents do? And what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: I have three sisters. And um, both of my parents were actually entrepreneurs. And I think that from a very early age influenced my thinking around the possibility of having an idea and then making it happen. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I loved languages and I really loved to travel. And so I kind of thought something international, something to do with business and international trade, but I didn't really know what that would look like.
0: You said your parents were entrepreneurs. What did they do? They had their own company. What was it?
1: Yes. My mom and her brother, she worked with her brother who had a golf business that he started himself and he owned and operated hundreds of golf courses and um, my dad had a swimwear company that he and his siblings founded. So it was kind of funny because when I went to college on the East Coast, everybody thought it was so funny that I had these parents with a, a golf and a swimwear business because it was so California.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's funny. And so when you were a kid, I mean, did looking back, were there things that you did that were pretty entrepreneurial, like early on?
1: Oh, I was a big fan of the lemonade stand. I loved making money. So if there was a free Saturday, I would definitely, you know, bake or make lemonade and friends and I you know, would have lemonade stands. So I guess that was probably my first entrepreneurial venture.
0: <laughs> and you were like, Hmm, this is fun. I like to make money. Yeah, I loved it. I loved babysitting. I've always loved
1: kids. And, you know, I think there's a real nurturer in me. And so while I wouldn't have predicted it at the time, you know, the fact that my company has a lot to do with nurturing and people taking care of themselves. That kind of makes a lot of sense because babysitting was actually my next entrepreneurial venture and I did it a lot and I loved it.
0: That's really interesting. You say that I feel like most people might think differently about nurturer personalities or types and business being so businessy, you know, like that's very interesting. Why do you say that the nurture side of you has really helped you in business?
1: Well, I think that one of the things that has really fueled the growth of my company is the genuine desire that I have and the people who work at my company with me have to help people take really great care of themselves and the people they love and the planet. You know, And so I have this theory that a lot of businesses that are very passionate about sustainability are led by women, and I do think it's that nurture energy, care for the planet. I mean, of course, you know, I know tons of men who really care for the planet too. But I do think that nurture energy and sustainability really align. And so,
0: you said you had three sisters. Were you the oldest, youngest, in the middle? Number three. All right. Yeah,
1: they say number three can be a real breakout. So it's sort of interesting because you know, I I think I was the first to leave where we grew up and moved north, big, big shift up to San Francisco. You flew Um, the coop. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Number three. And I have awesome sisters who I'm still really, really close to. And actually all three of them are entrepreneurs. So it's really interesting. They all own their own businesses.
0: That's funny. Family of entrepreneurs. Yeah. I find it fascinating because I'm wondering like, I wonder if your parents were, must've been really successful as entrepreneurship to make it look good. Whereas maybe if like another, if there was like a lot of struggle, the parents might be like, don't do this. Like get a secure job, play it safe. Right. Right. Don't go be wild and crazy like us.
1: No, I think so. I mean, they loved their entrepreneurial lifestyles and they loved having their own businesses and the process of creation and sort of the pride of ownership And I think also, I mean, when I really reflect, they didn't make it actually look that easy. You know, they would come home at night and it would have been a really rough day. And we'd hear about what had made that day rough. And my parents would talk it through. And, you know, sometimes we would have questions. And so I would guess that that was equally important because you can decide to be an entrepreneur But how long you stick with it, I think probably has a lot to do with expectations around whether or not it will be easy. And I don't think I ever had an expectation that it would be easy.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Because with the ownership and creativity and all these positive things about entrepreneurship, there's actually a lot of stress and responsibility and enormous kind of weights on your shoulders for taking care of the people you've hired and all the other things that come with running a company.
1: Hundred percent. Especially the the last thing that you mentioned for me has always been the biggest stressor, which is you know once you have people who rely on your business for their livelihood. Mm-hmm. If you're I having a tough families. day, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, one yeah. of one of my employees, who's also a dear friend, you know, her husband is an entrepreneur, and my company is the steady job. <laughs> And so it's like, oh boy, okay, I got to make sure it stays that way. No pressure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Let's just keep going the way we are uh, with the ups and downs of every day, right? It's so hard to tell if what tomorrow will be. So talk to me about, you know, you're a kid, you're kind of entrepreneurial, you're thinking this might be a path you want to go down, you know, talk to me about your first couple jobs at babysitting, you had a lemonade stand way before, but you know, kind of as you got into college, where'd you go and, and what did you study?
1: So I went to uh, Middlebury College in Vermont, and that's an incredible liberal arts school. And I was a political science major with a concentration in French and Spanish And I came out of that experience being such a believer in liberal arts educations, you know, whether it was that college, which I happen to love, or another liberal arts college, I was very encouraging of my kids looking at liberal arts colleges, because I, I feel that no matter what I would have chosen as my career path, having great critical thinking and communication skills really serves you well. I feel like communication is probably the single most important skill I bring to my work.
0: And so your first job out of college, was it at Levi's?
1: No. So my first job out of college, (laughs) people are always really surprised when they meet me after they've known what I've been doing for a while. Um, I was a commercial lender, actually, for a bank, a middle market lender. And um, what was really powerful about that, I did it for a couple of years, is that I was lending to companies, and I am a middle market company now. And one of my biggest jobs as an early lender was to spreadsheet all the companies and really look at what was happening with the numbers versus what they wanted us to feel about the numbers. And you could see where the problems were pretty quickly. And It was really great for me to have that experience and to see where the challenges were for different types of companies. You know, one of my first loans was a food company, packaged goods, and I just learned a lot from that experience. And one of the things that I learned is that I definitely was gravitating towards the more creative aspects of what I was doing and the communication aspects, you know, reaching out, meeting people, pursuing potential companies that we could lend to. And so I actually went to work for one of the companies and that that's how I moved out of banking. But I don't regret that experience, even though, you know, I wouldn't say it was a natural fit for me in terms of a long-term career. It was amazing experience.
0: What were some of the things you saw on that spreadsheet when you were, you know, like with the food companies, what were some of the things you learned and you saw under the hood?
1: The main issue that would surface with a lot of companies is it could look like Cash flow was okay because companies were creating selling. And so this process was in a circular loop. But, you know, if you looked under the hood and, and carefully evaluated margins, you know, one of the things I discovered with one of the companies I looked at was if they continued to grow, they actually weren't going to ever make very much money because their margins just weren't in the right place. And that wasn't always readily apparent at the first glance. There was this whole spreadsheeting process that would sort of help you pull it apart. And then it was always wild for me, you know, someone in her early 20s to say something like that, you know, to somebody who's building their own company, or I don't really see how it's possible that you're going to be ultimately
0: profitable. And they're like, what are you talking about? I've been working on this company for 10 years. I'm busting my ass. I need the money, you know, or you need to grow. And you're like, yeah, maybe it's not going to be so. Really interesting. That's a tough place to be in.
1: Yeah, it was great. I learned so much. I met really wonderful people. And, you know, one of the things I was able to do is from the outside in, see the different areas of the companies that I was meeting with and. I developed a real interest in marketing and, and that's sort of what fueled my desire to take the next step towards working in, in that area, which was a true passion. The minute I started working in marketing, I, again, back to communication, you know, it's something I enjoy and connecting. I really enjoyed connecting and I feel the power of marketing is to connect with potential customers, basically.
0: Talk to me about your, your marketing background and I, this is at Levi's, I assume now.
1: It is. I started at an agency. I, I worked for an agency on the agency side for a couple of years and had really great, iconic Bay Area client, clients like Dole and Pacific Bell. And one of them was Levi's. And I got to know that team. And then that's how I was ultimately asked to interview for a job over there. And once I moved over to Levi's, it really felt like such a tremendous fit. I didn't anticipate really going anywhere from there. And I uh, was given a lot of really great growth opportunities. I started in retail marketing, worked there for about eight months, and then I was offered the opportunity to interview for the five hundred one jeans advertising lead. And that was such an amazing job for somebody, you know, who was in her late twenties. So exciting, so interesting, high stakes. You know, it was a lot of pressure, but it was really fun. And then from there, I led the women's jeans marketing group. And that was fascinating, really amazing brand. Then, and I didn't really, I just anticipated that I would continue to work at Levi's. It was an incredible culture. I worked with wonderful people. There just wasn't anything not to like about it. And I was given lots of opportunities to grow. And then I had twins and then I had thyroid cancer And with baby twins and recovering from thyroid cancer, I just really felt like I needed to hit the pause button and, you know, focus on them and really learn about, you know, health and what I could do to best support my health. And it was actually through that time period that I discovered that skincare products were made with toxins. And I just had this moment, like, how is that possible?
0: Right. How is this toxic stuff available for sale on the market? Like who's in charge of letting this come through?
1: <laughs> right. And and that you're supposed to use these products to look and feel beautiful just seemed like yeah, absolutely amazingly crazy to me. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept learning about that and, you know, meanwhile I was consulting at that time at Levi's, which was great for me, you know, working at home, consulting at Levi's, and I just kept learning about skincare and beauty and You know, the more I thought about that, I really do feel that some of the best entrepreneurial ideas are extraordinarily logical. And I just thought there's no question to me that whole nutritive ingredients could make beautiful and extremely effective products. And so I just, you know, went on a path of learning more about that and meeting people who really understood the industry and learned a lot from them. And, you know, ultimately just decided it was time for me to
0: take that leap of faith and and do my own thing. It's funny you say the best ideas are logical, right? Because I find that some people might feel like if it's logical, everyone knows that idea. And then why go do it if it's so obvious? Completely. And I can't tell you the
1: number of people who said to me, well, there are a lot of skincare brands out there. (laughs) You, You have to really believe in yourself, I think, to do something like this because there were a lot of skincare brands out there. But my experience was, I was trying a lot of clean and natural products and they just didn't meet my expectations for a beautiful, luxurious experience and efficacy. And so I thought to myself, why should anyone need to choose between luxurious, effective, and safe, sustainable products when it just made sense that you could have both. And so that was my goal, you know, to create products that were so beautiful and effective that even if you did not care at all about using clean products, you would want to use our products. That's what we've been working on ever since.
0: Yeah. Do you remember that moment where you kind of i guess people call it like an aha moment right but when when was the time do you remember where you were what were you doing when you realized i have to i have to make this happen i have to just do this now is time
1: you know i'm really lucky to have you know i have a husband who you know is more the kind of person you would imagine would never think about being an entrepreneur Like, you know, you find a great job and you stick with it and, you know, steady Eddie.
0: Is he German? No, (laughs) Swedish. Swedish. My husband's German. Yeah. (laughs) Nice.
1: Yeah. Just a super steady guy and also someone who just has a knack for believing in what's possible relative to, you know, my ideas and. It was just so great because I I just kept playing around with it. And I would say it, it in my mind and then externally processing with him. I wouldn't say there was a definitive moment. Well, you know what, actually? Okay, there was. There was a definitive moment when I decided to start my own company. My mom had passed away. And I I did have this feeling of this is my one and only life. You know, you just have that moment of like, this isn't going to be forever. And why not? You know, I think that was it in terms of starting my own thing, because I was dabbling in beauty before. So I think that was it. That, That was the fuel that convinced me to just go for it. So I guess it's been about six years now, six years ago. I'm so glad that I did you know, and there were definitely moments, there's no question. So I had that moment, I decided I'm just going to go for it. And there were definitely moments along the way where I thought, what am I doing? I mean, without a doubt. And that's where my steady Eddie husband, it was super helpful, you know, instead of being like, oh, you shouldn't be doing this, because he would not want to do it. He was just like, this is great. You know, this is normal and keep going. And so, you know, it was really helpful to have a partner in this And not to have too much pressure on the end result because, you know, it took, for me personally, less pressure is better. I find that I'm the most creative and I make the best decisions when they're coming from a very grounded place. And I think it's hard to be grounded when you're feeling stressed about pressure. So over the years, I've really learned how to not think too much about the past or the future and to really respond in the moment to the opportunities that are there and, you know, what's the best path forward and each day sort of answering those questions. And I think it's made me a lot more resilient as an entrepreneur because, yeah, I think, you know, looking at raising kids and how important resiliency is, it's equally important for me, you know, and, and I think a lot of it has come from staying in the moment. And knowing to focus on the things that I can have an impact on. You know, there's a lot of things you cannot impact. You know, I would say one of the toughest experiences I ever had was the discovery that my number two selling product was made with toxins. And I had no idea. It was preserved, it was preserved, preserved with toxins because we had, we have the most rigorous. Certification for our products. It's a Made Safe certification, and they look at every ingredient and every sub ingredient. And I found this certification through an advisor that I had brought on to the brand. And um, it was a new certification backed by some of the world's leading scientists. I was so excited about it. And I am still, I mean, I just believe it's one of the smartest decisions I ever made. And as part of that process, we discovered that one of our ingredients was being preserved with BHT, and we had no idea. And BHT is a neurotoxin. It's not a good ingredient. And what I discovered is that almost all retinol is preserved with BHT. If it's not preserved with BHT, then it's preserved with vitamin E, and that's not a very strong preservative. So then you're basically getting an ingredient that's not doing a lot. So there, it's not like we had a great substitute for this ingredient. And so the idea was just okay. Let's meet this head on that our number two selling product is gone. And we wrote a letter to our customers and we did a press release and we explained what we were doing and why we were doing it. And, you know, rather than being this big disaster for my company, it actually really reinforced our commitment to our values. And I feel that it built a lot of trust within the beauty community that, you know, we are who we say we are and we're going to do what
0: we say we want to do. Right. You're putting your own things under a microscope. You're, you know, openly saying, oh, we found something and we've got to fix it right away. Instead of saying, oh, I don't know what you're talking about and brushing it under the rug. (laughs) Right. And it's not fun to discover stuff like that. No. And it's not even fun to talk about it. (laughs) No,
1: no. And yet it did become almost fun just because it was like, yes, you know, we're not going to do this.
0: Right. We can make a positive change here.
1: Right. And there are alternatives there are other ways to take really great care of your skin without toxins. And that's always been our ethos is, you know, keep educating people, help them to be skin intellectuals so that they can make great choices and keep educating ourselves, you know, being open to whatever we might learn.
0: Yeah. What do you say to the person who's like, ah, A little toxin won't hurt you. Like, you know, that you need the retinol. So, oh, it's preserved with whatever. I don't know what that means. So I'm sure I'll just be fine, right? What do you say to that? What what's the harm? I think one thing that I've really
1: learned to respect is the complexity of that question. Because, you know, it's true that if if you use retinol, you know, a certain amount of time, probably not gonna be a problem. The biggest question I have, and the reason that I feel so dedicated to providing clean alternatives is that, you know, what, what is the cumulative load that we develop over a lifetime and what is that doing? And, you know, as I share with people that, you know, the reason I knew it was true, that what goes on your skin goes into your body. When, when I shared that story, a lot of people would look at me like, oh, maybe I do want to look into my shampoo, conditioner, skincare products, everything because there was a study that showed that the s- toxins in skincare products that women were putting on their bodies was found in babies cord blood and that was the aha moment for me relative to it does matter so that's basically what i would say is ultimately you know these ingredients are absorbing into our bloodstream and It's not about one application, but guess what? Nobody's doing one application.
0: It's like counting calories. Like you just don't want to do it. You know, you just don't want to write it down because once you write it down, it's real. And then you have to make a change. Otherwise you're in denial, right? So yeah, if you write down every toxin that you're putting in your body from every shampoo, conditioner, uh, shaving cream to lotions, toothpaste. I mean, I don't know, makeup, all of it. It's all, it's all a mess. And what we're trying to
1: prove is it's just unnecessary. You know, our products are outperforming consistently, dramatically outperforming leading conventional brands. And so why, then why do you need to use brands made with toxins if these products work better? So that's, You know, ultimately what I say to them, I just try to not have that conversation because, you know, to me, it sort of feels like I don't want to be critical of other brands. Right. So instead, I'm just focused on, well, this stuff works better and it's made with beautiful, safe ingredients. That's all you need to know.
0: You know, there's this ad, I think from like Super Coffee, and they made this ad and it was like calling out Dunkin' Donuts, like time to change or something ridiculous, like really calling out the big ones, big fish, right? So I'm actually curious, what if, what if you or someone else in this clean space did do that and started calling out these bigger brands and taking a stand? Well, the
1: way I like to look at it is, you know, I feel I can see actually how a lot of the bigger brands are making small changes to do better. And I think that's awesome and I applaud it because the goal in the end is that this entire industry changes to better serve the health of people and the planet. So I feel like rather than A negative statement. I'm just not, I've never been a fan of negative advertising. I'd rather just state the positive, and we don't even need to name the brands, but we can say the two leading serums, one of the leading luxury moisturizers. You know, we're outperforming them. And that's all you need to know. You know, and I think what's for me, what's better about that is ultimately in a more gentle way, we might inspire those brands to look at removing the toxins from their products which would be great.
0: And so you kind of had this, we'll call it that aha aha moment, you know, when you're like, this is what I really want to do. Um, what were some of the first steps that you took to, to get the business off the ground?
1: Well, you know, for me, it really came down to having some core iconic products that could really make a difference for people's skin and figuring out how to get as many people excited about them as possible. What was really impactful for the business, one of our core products is a face oil. We have three face oils for three different skin types, blemish prone, aging, and red inflamed rosacea prone. And those were sort of our three core products that we started with. And we did a clinical trial with one of them, measuring the efficacy of a face oil as your moisturizer compared to a leading iconic cream and dramatically outperformed that product. And it was a cream that a lot of beauty editors were using. And I went from meeting with them when they would sort of look at me a little glazed over like, "Oh, you want me to use this face oil as my moisturizer" to them taking the bottle home, using the face oil and then telling me, you know, "Hey, could I get a second bottle for my place in upstate New York?" which was one of the most exciting requests I got. That was from a leading beauty editor. So, you know, I It was it was really exciting to quickly convert people to this core product of ours and to have it become a cult favorite. And we found that some celebrities were using it and loving it. And I would say, yeah, that's sort of how we got started, like pick a win and then run with it.
0: Kind of your go-to-market strategy was really focused on sending product to editors, getting the the PR going. Did you kind of do that all in-house or did you hire an agency? And what does product development look like for something like this? It seems like it takes a very long time to create products like this.
1: It does. You know, it takes a lot of research and really looking at it from a scientific perspective. I think what's really exciting is some of the most forward-thinking scientific perspectives around aging and cellular aging, it is coming out of universities. And so I had access to a lot of really great information. And so it did require a lot of research and collaboration. What I did initially, which made a huge difference for me is I brought on some advisors who had incredible scientific experience. So the head of green chemistry from Carnegie Mellon University, who really believed in what I was trying to accomplish in terms of human and environmental health, helped me to identify our preservation system, which is one of the toughest things for clean brands. That is just preservation. Once you get that cracked, it's it's a big step forward. And, and you know, you want it to be something that works extraordinarily well, but that's completely safe and doesn't irritate the skin. And that's a lot. So I surrounded myself by people who could help me get our products to the right place. And then, yes, I definitely hired a great PR agency. And that made all the difference because that's the kind of buzz and growth that I think you can really build off of. It's an important platform, I think, for an emerging brand to get um, the right people talking about you.
0: Yeah. How do you find the right PR agency? What advice do you have for hiring the right agency?
1: I, I'm going to answer that question by telling you how I hired our pediatrician. So I hired our pediatrician by asking the nurses who taught the baby class at the hospital. um, I said, so who would you have for your pediatrician? And I ended up with the best pediatrician. All my friends were just like, how did you get into her? She's incredible. So, similarly, I think finding the right PR agency is about taking the time to really understand from the clients that they've worked with, and not necessarily all the ones, all the clients that they recommended I should seek out, but you can see the whole history. And so, really finding out what it's like to work with that agency. And I found somebody who was incredibly scrappy and very connected to the beauty editors, and she was just such a wonderful person to start out on this adventure with.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And so, you know, once you kind of got the product and market a little bit, did you do any fundraising? Yes. So let's talk about fundraising. How, how much have you guys raised so far and what was it like to um, do the different rounds that you've done?
1: So, you know, I would say that, you know, fundraising wasn't necessarily something that I would would have anticipated. And yet, as I saw the industry starting to explode, it became clear that raising funds and running with the traction that we had would make a lot of sense because clean beauty was so buzzy at that moment. It actually wasn't that hard to drum up interest. We were in Aubert spas at that point, you know, we had some good traction. And so, I would say the most important aspect of fundraising, and fortunately, I had gotten advice from some great friends to make sure to get people involved with our business who could add value. And so it was really a process of understanding, you know, who did we think could be the best partners. And um, we were very lucky to make some great choices because still our major funders are on our board. I love working with them feel really lucky to have them involved in the business. And I call them all the time for advice. So
0: during that process, did you, I'm sure you also got a fair share of no's. What were some of the things that naysayers were saying about it? Or, you know, what was it like? How did you kind of deal with the people that weren't interested at all?
1: Because, and and I guess this is just sort of probably how I think in general, I could hardly list the no's because I think it was just all about, trailing from one yes to the next yes to the next yes. And so if there was a moderate amount of enthusiasm, then we just kind of let it drop. I was working with someone at the time who led that process and she did a really great job. And, you know, I don't know if she even knew the word no, you know, she was just out there looking for yeses and making sure that it was the right
0: yes. So you hired someone to help with fundraising. Well she
1: was working with me at the time at the company. She is a former CEO of the company and so she really led that process which was wonderful and she had experience with it and it still was just I mean for both of us it was a grueling experience it, it just takes a lot of time and when you're also growing a business at the same time it's a lot. <laughs> but but very much worth it and as I said you know, it was a moment where we had gained a lot of traction and it was an important time to run with it so that we could really solidify our positioning.
0: And so what were some of the things that you, like, what are the takeaways or insights that you have from that fundraising process? Looking back on it, what are some things that kind of you're like, oh, I didn't know that's how it worked. Or is there anything that stuck out?
1: You know, I just think the key is to be incredibly selective about the people that ultimately invest in your company, because you will be interacting with them for a very long time. And there will be highs and there will be lows. And it makes a huge difference to have a supportive group involved with your business. So I would say that's the number one learning from that process for me and I feel really lucky to say that you know if I were to do it again there's so many of our investors that would be my first phone call because they have been incredibly supportive and have added a lot of value.
0: I think a great way to um, vet investors is probably similar to how you vetted a PR agency, right? You you go through the portfolio, you talk to some of the founders and you ask them, "Hey, what are these guys like or girls hopefully?" What are they like when things are really tough? What is it like to work with this person?
1: A hundred percent day in and day out when the going gets tough. And they often have people call me to talk to me about what it's like to work with them. And um, you know, fortunately, I have a lot of great things to say. And I think it's really important again not to just call the people that are on the list. If at all possible, find some people who they don't necessarily think that you're calling. And I would say that very much translates for me to hiring, you know, and when you're checking references for hiring, it's hard to check too many references from my perspective, because when you make the wrong hire,
0: that takes a lot of time to fix. Definitely. Yeah. Well, at least you can fix it. But if someone's on your cap table as an investor, it's kind of hard to fix, (laughs) you know, to get that person out. It's annoying. Um, Yeah. Fortunately, I have to say I haven't had that experience. (laughs) That's great. I had a bad apple. It was not fun. And it's funny that like, I think that, you know, everybody knows investors kind of talk. Um, They talk to each other about deals and deal flow and they pass deals to each other and blah, blah, blah. But you know what? Founders do too.
1: Absolutely.
0: And when you are not nice to a founder, oh boy, like, they will not get deal flow from you. And it's, it's not, a, you are not creating a good reputation as an investor.
1: Right, no, 100%. You know, and to the contrary, one of my favorite investors, I'm sending her really cool founders all the time because <laughs> exactly. she is just yeah. my ride or die. I call awesome. her, she's my first phone call when I'm thinking through something. So yeah, the contrary is very true too.
0: And now we're gonna take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Did you know that brands like Magic Spoon, Mudwater, and Caraway get an average of 20 times the return on their investment when using Malomo? Customers track their orders four to five times before it even gets to their door. And instead of sending them to the carrier's tracking page, Malomo built a tool to help brands optimize post-purchase marketing. Use order status emails and tracking pages to spur engagement and drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive in managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to GoMalomo.com slash StairwayToCEO. While most people living in colder climates are getting ready to bring their outdoor furniture indoors to protect it during the winter months, customers of the popular brand Outer don't have to lift a finger. After all, outdoor furniture should stay outdoors, right? Right. Made from durable materials like all-weather wicker that withstands temperatures down to negative 220 degrees with a marine-grade frame and legs, Outer ensures your outdoor sofa will stay good as new until spring and for many years to come. So if you're preparing to bundle up this winter, go get some marshmallows to roast over the fire pit and enjoy some cozy time outdoors with Outer. You can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com.
2: I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote, and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization, and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to Gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free.
0: Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So... You've raised some capital, sounds like. What round was your last round? So, you know, what was interesting because of the traction
1: that we were gaining, we ultimately just sort of did a mini A. We were thinking of raising a series B and instead we just topped off our A with existing investors, which was something I was very excited to do because, you know, expanding that pool, once you realize what it takes to stay in touch and make sure people are up to date, um i was much more excited about topping up our a and you know now we're in a place where the business is profitable and you know we don't anticipate raising again and that's such a nice feeling
0: and when it comes to hiring what are some red flags that you've learned to look for
1: i tended to be the kind of person where i would meet somebody we'd connect and i'd feel like okay this is great let's go and and what i've discovered is Just because you connect with somebody doesn't mean you necessarily have an aligned vision around how to grow the business. And so, in a weird way, I would say one of the biggest red flags that I've learned to manage is my own optimism and to really work to be more discerning up front. It doesn't mean you know, anybody's anything but a great person, but not necessarily someone who's looking at how they would want to build a business in the same way that I would want to build business. For instance, coming from a brand building perspective and the importance of brand building and really valuing that. And so I, I think I've just learned to be a lot more discerning around finding the right fit and how important that is. Because, you know, often the biggest complaint about founders is that they have a hard time letting go. And I have learned, (laughs) I'm very comfortable looking at it as it is after all these years. And what I've learned is it's a lot easier to let go when you really trust somebody and you feel aligned with their vision around how to build the brand and grow the business. And so yeah, that's that's been the biggest and and I think so many of the red flags based on my experience you know no matter how hard you try they may not surface for 6 months a year and so the other thing I have really learned is that it is worth doing everything possible to vet important employees so not just talking again just like investors right not just talking to the list for references, but also finding out, oh, wow, I know this person who worked there five years ago, I should check and see, because I've, you know, been really surprised by some of the stuff that I've learned over time. And it would have been really great to know it up front.
0: Yeah, the references don't really help. I mean, it's kind of almost a waste of time, because all they're going to say is good stuff anyways, right? It's, I don't know, they've never really worked.
1: Yeah. Right. Who wants to get in the way of somebody finding the a job? job. That so, yeah, exactly. it's just, it's by nature, a really yeah. tough thing. Totally. So, yeah, I really think looking deeply into what it's been like to work with someone over a long period of time is such a valuable, it's, it's, it's time well spent.
0: I like that you said manage, that you're getting better at managing your own optimism. And founders by nature are very, very optimistic you have to be to be able to create something from nothing and try to make make it happen and build it you have to think it will work so there's this natural optimism that we have to have a lot of as a founder and the problem is is we are optimistic about people too which is great in a sense where we want to give people a chance and we see their potential and we we believe in them because we believe in ourselves and we know we can do it you know it's it's but it actually creates a lot of chaos at hiring the wrong people over and over again. And I've seen this a lot with founders where they're, you know, very optimistic about someone. They're trying to fill the spot. So they hurry up and make a hire. And it's just the wrong one over and right. over again. And it right. can be very, very destructive to a business.
1: Well and I think a really tricky aspect of entrepreneurs that accompanies the optimism is determination. And so then once I I'm in that place. I have found myself wanting to make it work so badly that I hung in there way too long. Because, you know, meanwhile, it's like, I will get that packaging. I will source that ingredient that's out of stock. You know, all of the things that you have to do to just make it happen. I applied that to professional relationships and, you know, hung in there too long in certain instances. And, you know, you learn you learn and and you keep moving forward and you know for me what's been tremendously exciting is that it's it's ultimately led to hiring a CEO who's just incredible i feel like all those lessons man i mean i vetted her every which way and she's just amazing we're so aligned around how to build a beautiful brand and i love work it's it's just been so much fun and it's been very easy for me to let go which i think is fascinating because Because I'm not the person, you know, there are different founders out there, I think. And some founders are the founders who are meant to scale a business and, you know, hire a team of 100 people to run it. I am not that person. I am definitely more drawn to the creative process, to research, learning, growing. And I would much rather not manage a company. Uh, The the day-to-day management is not my thing. It's not my, it's not my strength, you know, and it's not what I enjoy. And so to have that now is an incredible gift. And I would wish that for every founder who is like me and then other founders. And I think a lot of it can sort of depend on the business. I think maybe as other businesses aren't as creative as my business, you know, we're creating a product, we're packaging the product, you know, there's so much happening that is very aesthetic and, So I think for someone like me, having uh, someone with really strong general management experience lead my business is an incredible gift.
0: Yeah. What do you think makes a really great CEO?
1: I would say someone who knows how to lift people up and empower the right people um, you and I have talked a lot about hiring the right people. So I think probably that's number one. You know, She has brought in a team that absolutely is top notch and she can rely on her team. She does an amazing job of empowering. Because if you're going to hire very talented people, if they don't feel the freedom to do their best work, then they're not going to be happy and you won't be able to retain them. And so she's hired these incredible people. They actually follow her around. They've worked with her at other companies. She really cares a lot about people, which I think is wonderful. And she's not at all afraid to tell it like it is, which I think is equally important. You know, people talk a lot about direct communication. You can ask anybody, you know, how do you feel about communication? I haven't met a person who didn't say that they value direct communication, but valuing it and executing direct communication are two very different things. And... She does it really well and um, very gracefully. And it makes a huge difference because people feel safe and motivated.
0: From your point of view, when you hear kind of this direct communication that you're talking about, what makes it different and so great compared to maybe other forms of direct communication?
1: Well, I would just say a lot of times people might value it, but they can't do it.
0: Or they think they can do it, but they're actually not doing it at all. Right. They're, they're
1: not coming out and sharing very specific feedback or concerns or aspirations. And, you know, without the information, it's not possible for a team to do better, you know, to really have the information and to give, to give the team a shot at pivoting and growing individually, you know, you can grow so much more when you've got someone invested in what's working well for you and what you could do better. So, you know, relative to direct communication, you know, I, when she came on, I just said, this is the most important transition for me. And I want this to be a great relationship. And and what I did actually before she came is I spoke with at least 3 of our investors who had taken over four founders as CEOs and i had them walk me through from their side what that experiences was like and and what worked well and what didn't work well and like what are the pitfalls for a founder bringing in a CEO and i told her straight out you know these are the things i know can be issues this is what i'm planning to do and we just had a very, very open communication around the transition. And it, it has made such a difference because I think, you know, we just continued to have very open communication. And yeah, I think the difference, so you asked me a good question. What is the difference between her kind of direct communication? You know, I think it's very, she, she's very artful at making it productive. You know, there's a purpose for sharing information that will be beneficial, I, I witness her doing it all the time. So you know she doesn't sweat the small stuff, and I think that's really important. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do with the team: is you know, if there's something big I need to discuss, I will. But overall, these are very smart people doing an incredible job, and I don't need to get into the minutia. It's not fair. Because everybody's, oh, this was one of the things that he said to me that she does so well all the time. Um, One one of the founders who took over as CEO for a big personal care company, he said, there is no question this team is going to make mistakes. And so rolling with the mistakes is going to be one of the first important things that you do. And sure enough, there was an issue that came up and it was very clear to me that everybody knew they would approach it differently. The next time and that was it and they were kind of shocked because they were waiting for a big response on my end and it's like well i certainly made mistakes and you know who doesn't perfection doesn't exist so yeah i would say productive direct communication and and not sweating the small things is i think incredibly valuable and it's brave it's brave to talk about things that are uncomfortable And, you know, I would say that my favorite investors are really good at that. And the ones that are the most uncomfortable discussing tough things, you know, I've learned how to probe for information more.
0: Yeah. You know, I wish people, I mean, in my experience, it's been tough sometimes with people that are not honest and they think they're direct and they're just not, they clearly like didn't say anything. And then all of a sudden something happens and it's like, why are you coming at me like this? Oh, because you didn't want, you didn't talk to me about it. Like people don't like to talk about conflict and it's really shocking when you when yeah when it kind of happens to you and you're like i thought that you were a direct communication person because you talk about it all the time but you're actually not
1: <laughs> no i i think it's really hard for most people
0: especially
1: yes. most people i will say of my generation i grew up with a real pleaser generation i mean i don't know <laughs> if it's because i did a pretty good job with our kids, but my kids are direct communicators. I mean, I don't have to wonder about what they're
0: thinking. (laughs) Nice. That keeps (laughs) it easy. That's good. (laughs) At least one part of it's easy. Yeah. Communication is key. That's funny. So what's, before we kind of wrap up here, what's something you think most people don't know about building a business or what's something you wish you knew before starting your business?
1: When I talk to people and I meet entrepreneurs who are starting out, You know, I think there's an idealism around what it's like to build your own business. And, you know, as I referenced earlier about my parents, you know, I saw that there were very hard days and lots of challenges. And, you know, I think just knowing that the challenges will come and keeping my knees bent, you know, meeting them with my best thought processes and, you know problem solving skills is really the best you can do and and rolling with it you know because i think you know if there were one thing that i wish i'd done more is just create a little more balance in my life and not feel like something has to be resolved right away like giving time for a challenge that i'm trying to resolve to Become super clear. And then, you know, I've just sort of discovered if I live the question long enough, the answers do come. And so having trust in that and not sweating it quite as much, I think could have contributed to a little more balance. So one of my best friends, daughter's an entrepreneur, she's in her late twenties. And, you know, I definitely want to take her out and say, it's just not worth too much stress. Just keep bringing your best every day. And it goes where it goes easy for me to say at this point, (laughs) but you know, yeah, I do feel like not expecting it to be easy and meeting as it comes is, is a really powerful message.
0: Definitely. What's a lesson that you kind of had to learn the hard way in building your company?
1: Oh, you know, I would say probably the lesson I had to learn the hard way was knowing when it was the right time to make my transition from CEO to founder and bringing in the right person to help scale the business. If I could now looking back, I would have done that probably a year at least or two sooner just because I feel like I'm able to bring my best to the business. You know, this person is adding so much value. It's just been such a positive change and you know, I feel like I could write a book about the founder transition, you know, you and should. <laughs> it, it's such a, it can be such a positive thing. You know, it, it has been one of the most positive chapters in my experience of being an entrepreneur. And I don't think people necessarily always perceive it that way. And, and I didn't necessarily, because, you know, there were aspects of that I wasn't quite ready to let go of. But once, once I did, I just felt like, oh my gosh, this is the best. The best. And finding that right person is everything.
0: Yeah, it's got to be such a hard thing to go through to kind of give the reins almost to someone new. Right. It's that's got to be really hard after so much work you've put in and and to kind of step back and say, you know what, I'm I think I'm actually really strong over here and maybe not so much over here. And I got to find someone to cover that spot for me. And that's a, that takes a lot of maturity, responsibility. Like, That's just a really smart way to do business, right? That's like a smart thing to do, but it's emotionally super difficult.
1: It is a really hard thing to do, especially if you want to hire someone as talented as the person that we hired. She's incredible and she is not somebody who would want to be micromanaged. So that's sort of back to the hire someone amazing and then give them the room to do their amazing work. And then because of that, she's seeking out my input all the time. You know, it's just this really wonderful feedback loop. And if I had known how positive this would be, I would have done it a lot sooner.
0: Yeah. But who would have thought, right? I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of stories that aren't like that. <laughs> you know, I hired the CEO and it was terrible. <laughs> right. Completely. Yeah.
1: It's, it's a big, well, you know what? It's as big of a leap of faith as it was for me to found the business in the first place. Yeah. It, it, yeah. it felt like that kind of leap of faith. So it's really exciting. And I'm so grateful that, you know, that's where things
0: landed. So what's the future look like for the brand and what's some final advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? So the future for the
1: brand is incredibly positive, bright. I'm so excited. We have a lot of traction. We're growing rapidly and I feel very positive about where we're going and the ways in which we're inspiring change in the beauty industry, which was my goal from the start. So that's all really, really exciting. And, you know, for me personally, something that I'm very excited to be supporting and focusing on right now is sourcing. I think that's a new frontier for the beauty industry and something that we need to look a lot more closely at because how we source ingredients impacts not only the health of our customers, but also the health of the farmers and the planet And so I've gotten very excited about regenerative farming, and I've been putting a lot of energy into learning more about it. And it's something that True Botanicals is really prioritizing, and I'm very, very excited about that. As a matter of fact, my husband and I actually bought a farm, and we're getting ourselves um, more involved in the regenerative farming movement, which I think will be very rewarding for this next phase of my life. So, you know, I feel great about the future of the business and I feel really great about the future of the industry and, you know, the potential to impact a lot of what we're facing, you know, globally in terms of climate change and the importance of sustainability. You know, if every farm today was a regenerative farm, we would be carbon neutral. And as soon as I learned that statistic, I thought, okay, wow, this is something that I care about and I really want to get involved in. And I love that, you know, my team at True Botanicals is very excited to support the regenerative farming movement as well. So we're doing everything we can to get involved and source from regenerative farms. And it's making what was already a very rewarding job, even more rewarding.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And advice for anyone tuning in, thinking about taking the leap into entrepreneurship, what would you say? It's an incredibly
1: rewarding journey. I think it provides an opportunity. Being an entrepreneur provides an opportunity to be innovative and creative in a way that few careers could. So I uh, I couldn't recommend it more. And, you know, at the same time, you know, I would say that, you know, expecting some challenges and being ready to meet those with a lot of flexibility and determination is just part of it. So if, if you're up for both sides, you know, the freedom and the hard work and the challenges, then I, I can't think of a better career.
0: And just don't sweat the small stuff, right? Right.
1: Oh my gosh. And don't sweat the small (laughs) stuff. That is, that is such an important message because, you know, ultimately that's not what's going to make or break your business. And it's, you know, it's really interesting because if you think about it, one of the things we've talked a lot about duality today And so I think one of the things that has made me a successful entrepreneur is my attention to detail, exactly how this product feels on your skin. How, you know, is this scent light and lovely, or is it a little too much and getting it just right? And the packaging, you know, everything is about detail. And yet to be a successful entrepreneur, you really need to take 10 steps back and not sweat the small stuff. And so <laughs> that combination, I feel like I'm constantly being asked to in some ways be incredibly detail oriented and sweat every small thing. And then in other ways, step back and don't worry too much about the small the small stuff. So
0: it's such a ping pong game, honestly, isn't it? It's like up down, up down, do this, don't do that. And it's like <laughs> manage people, but be creative. Da-da-da-da. It's it's all it's everything. That's why they say wear many hats, but you're actually wearing like double the same hat. Completely. And, you know, I know this new, I knew
1: this really incredible woman who I admired and in her final phases of a terminal illness, she said to me, you know, life is so interesting. You just never know what's going to come your way. And I've learned, you just have to keep your knees bent. And it, I think that sums up the entrepreneurial journey very well. You know, mm-hmm. keep, keep your knees bent and you'll be fine. Right. Don't stiff up too much. They might no. break. <laughs> and and don't you know, haven't you had those experiences where especially since she said that to me, I'll catch myself and I will be sweating this small stuff and I'll have my knees locked, you know, right.
0: and I'll just catch myself and say, no, no, bend your knees. This yes. doesn't matter. Try to relax. Yeah. Even if you can't sleep at night, just try to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is not
1: mission critical.
0: Yeah. Even though every single little thing feels like, oh my gosh, it's a huge deal because it's your company, you know, it's, it's everything.
1: And, you know, I think ultimately it's as important for my own health to be able to do that as it is for everybody who works with me because, you know, I've become so much more aware of how much they're up at night, you know? And so if I can keep my knees bent, then we can all keep our knees bent and you know, anything's possible.
0: Awesome. Well, Hillary, thank you so much for making the time to be on the show today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Lee.